Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Welcome to Science in Action from the BBC World Service. I'm Roland Pease. Later in the programme, the brightest object in the universe. So this quasar is about 500 trillion times brighter than the sun. The scorching heart of a 37-year-old supernova remnant. I hope you're ready for a very big number. The neutron star is over a million degrees Celsius. And we'll be hearing why an AI image showing a ludicrously well-endowed rat is causing hilarity among scientists, but more seriously, what it reveals about the state of scientific publishing. Three or so years after the first COVID vaccines were being put into arms around the world, the largest study yet looking into their safety in real-world settings. All kinds of vaccines and all kinds of combinations which many of us got with our second and booster doses. The evidence is already that they are largely safe, certainly safer than coronavirus infection, yet anti-vax misinformation still gets pushed in very high places. I now recognize Ms. Green from Georgia for five minutes of questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm not a doctor, but I have a PhD in recognizing bullshit when I hear it. I'd like to point like out... Like Congress just last week in the USA. There's been thousands of peer-reviewed medical studies studying vaccine injuries. They are real. People are dying. People are having heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, and many other countries are dropping the COVID-19 vaccine and saying we shouldn't give them to children. The gentlelady's time has expired. I now recognize Mr. Garcia from California for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I- I'm sorry you all had to go through that. That was a lot of conspiracy theories and wild accusations. Uh, which we know have been debunked by medical science. And we should be clear that vaccines work and save lives, and they have millions of lives in this country. The sheer scale of the new study run by the Global COVID Vaccine Safety Project should allay any real concerns, though not the politicking, given its sensitivity to rare adverse events. I spoke to one of the organisers, Helen Petusis-Harris of the School of Public Health at Auckland University. So for this particular piece of work, there were actually over 99 million people that we looked at. Eight countries and 99 million vaccinated people. That's a portion of the size of our consortium, which is probably three or 400 million. This came from the challenge that when you start getting into really super rare health events, they become extraordinarily difficult to study in any single country or any single site. And also, of course, across the world, populations differ and also so do the vaccines and the way they use them. So by bringing together a huge global consortium that can actually carry out exactly the same study across the globe, we can increase the study power enormously. And as you're saying, the point is that you need to look at this number of people to see if worrying concerning kinds of side effects are going to show up. 
That's right. I mean, if one were doing this in a timely way, you could identify things quite quickly because you have those sheer numbers to see something that's one in a million where you've got to vaccinate a lot of people before you can actually detect that. And people had been detecting some of these conditions already. But what you couldn't do is say, well, what if a person had a Pfizer mRNA vaccine and then they had an AstraZeneca vaccine? And what about all these combinations and how does that all work? You can't get down into that. Whereas with the size of this, you can start peeling that apart. As far as I can tell, the main headline of the results of your study is that you are seeing some of those conditions which have been reported before and you're seeing them at the sorts of levels which have been reported before, but now you have a lot more confidence that that's what's going on. Yeah, it's reassuring that our approach is working in that these events, yes, indeed, they are quite rare. And also we had the ability to pick up some things that were kind of sort of humming in the background, maybe, maybe not. And I think we've sort of highlighted that. So what we do now is to go and do other types of studies to investigate these and see what that risk might be. And that there's another paper in the same issue of the journal that does exactly that on one of the neurological conditions and is able to verify where that risk is. Tell me more about that one. So there was a couple of neurological conditions and that was the acute disseminated encephalitis, a neurological inflammation, extraordinarily rare. So we picked it up in this and our Australian colleagues were able to go and do a very specific type of study that's used for very rare vaccine events and they were able to show that there appears to be an association after the viral vector vaccines, but not the, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine. And it also tells us that you might see less than a one in a million out of a million doses, an extra less than one case. So that's how rare it is. So obviously changing the vaccine regime for some people maybe the the answer the other would be if physicians are on the lookout these are treat a lot of these are treatable or not mm. long-lived conditions i mean one of the conditions that has been flagged up in the past has been the myocarditis which is i think a kind of inflammation of the heart tissue well that's right we know for example myocarditis that has been observed following the vaccine tends to be a lot milder than that seen after natural infection and seems to have a different mechanism. But generally speaking, most people get a full recovery. Are there any other conditions, you know, which have been flagged up in the past, which you, you think we should look at or things that have come up that make you wonder a little bit what to do next, how to follow up? Yeah, we had to make a decision about, OK, so we see something. We see something that is more than you might expect. How much more than you expect is going to trigger an action? What's actually important here? And so what we've done is we've color-coded things. The color red indicates it reaches a certain threshold that suggests it would be something you would prioritize to look at. So that's where you see, you see red with the myocarditis, you see it in the um, with some of those thrombotic events and also the um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, another a neurological syndrome. I mean, those are the ones which stand out because they're red because they're more than 150% increased amongst those patients. But I think... I've been reporting health problems long enough to know that an increase does not really give you an idea of the real risk because it might be something no. that's so rare in the first place. And that's really difficult, I think, to 
understand. That's exactly right, which is why it's so useful when you go to the next level and do these what we call association studies. You can provide people with what we call an attributable risk, which basically says, um, like this, this neurological condition I just mentioned, out of a million doses, you might see maybe 0.7 or less than one extra case of this above what you would normally see. So that gives, I think, a better sense of just how rare it is and how unlikely you are to experience that. I mean, for people taking the vaccine, I guess the two questions, one of them is what difference does this make to me in terms of the kinds of effects I could have if I just get the virus, if I get infected, you know, and the the relative dangers there. Absolutely. This is the vital information people need for making uh, informed decisions. What's my risk from the disease? And of course, what's my risk from taking the vaccine? Now, now with all of these vaccines, overwhelmingly, the best group to be in is in the vaccinated group by huge margins. But for some subpopulations, you know, perhaps this group is better to, to have this type of vaccine and this group is better to have that type of vaccine. And getting down into that is what's really useful and helps drive those decisions. Uh, and the other one is, can you compare the safety of COVID vaccines to other vaccines which are widely used and which people are very comfortable using? You know, it, it's often said, oh, these are experimental and therefore there's more danger. And I have no idea if they're more or less or the same risks involved. I would say these, are, especially this mRNA vaccine, is one of the safest vaccines we've seen. I think that the issue is we've gone out and vaccinated most of the world's population and you're absolutely going to see those rare things and hear about them. But you've also got all the noise as well going on with the overload of information, the disinformation, the misinformation, which makes any very rare risks seem big in people's minds. I don't think there's any vaccines I'm aware of that you could essentially say were were safer. Your chances of anything really bad happening to you here are very, very low. Helen Petusis-Harris, the full analysis published in the journal simply called Vaccine, is a very heavy read. But the project has also written some blogs distilling the essential messages. Just follow the link from the Science in Action webpage. You'll find that at bbcworldservice.com. You might also want to check out a story in the Washington Post this week detailing how much money anti-vax operations make from their misinformation. It's staggering. If you're listening to this live on Thursday, then you're listening to the 37th anniversary of the supernova 1987A, the best view astronomers have had of an exploding star in centuries, certainly during the modern telescope era. So much astrophysics to be learned. All the indications were back then that amidst all the flash and glory, the dying star should have given birth to a neutron star, a dense, dead, spinning cinder that would be emitting radio pulses. So we waited and waited and waited and still there's no pulsing radio signal. But Images collected by the James Webb Telescope in its first weeks of operation, peering deep into the ejector thrown out by the explosion, suggest there is something powerful lurking beneath. Olivia Jones is a James Webb Space Telescope Fellow at Edinburgh University, and she helped in the analysis. 87A is an absolutely stunning supernova. It's beautiful, and 
The fact that you can see it when it first exploded with the naked eye is unprecedented for such an object in another galaxy like this. We've been able to see how it evolves in real time, which in astronomy terms is extremely rare. Just tracing the evolution of the death of a star. It's very exciting. I mean, the main point is that the bit that we see when the star initially explodes, we see all the hot stuff that's being thrown out into space. And then you've got this sort of evolving fireball, which has been easiest to see so far. Yes, what you see initially is the actual explosion of the star itself right in the centre. What happens now is then we had a period of about 10 years where you couldn't actually see very much in the centre. You needed these new telescopes like Webb and JWST to see the mechanics of the explosion. And then key to this is what was left behind. And we've been searching for that holy grail. Has a neutron star formed or has a black hole been left behind at the centre of this explosion? And we've not seen anything for a very long time. And this neutron star, so this is the bit where the middle of the original star, which at the end of its life, is mostly made of iron, just gets sort of crushed under its own weight and under the force of the explosion to turn itself entirely into this sort of ball of neutron matter. Yes, it's the very, very core of the star. So the star like the sun, right in the centre, is a a very dense core. But really massive stars, like supernova 1987a, or what it was beforehand, was about 20 times the mass of a sun. If you think of our sun as a tennis ball in size... The star that formed 87A was about as big as a London eye. So it was a very massive star. The pressure and density right in the centre of that star is phenomenal. So it creates this really, really compact core. A teaspoon of this material of a neutron star weighs about as much as Everest. Um, yeah. So it's a very, a very dense, very heavy core that's left behind. And these are the things which were first detected in the 1960s because they have a magnetic field and they rotate they spin very fast and they cause radio pulsations and they're called pulsars so when the supernovas first went off i know lots of radio astronomers were hoping to see those radio pulsations from the middle of this supernova remnant yes so we know really massive stars will form a black hole in the center 30 40 50 solar masses will form a black hole when it dies something around 20 solar masses you'd expect to form a neutron star and so you'd expect to see these signatures like you said, in the radio waves or an optical light of this really fastly rotating, by fastly rotating it being around 700 times a second. Um, <laughs> the numbers are amazing, aren't they? <laughs> but you'd expect to see that signature or some detection of that. But even with all these telescopes, all the radio telescopes, X-ray observatories, Hubble, we've not seen that signature before. And so we're wondering, has a black hole been formed? We've seen neutrinos, so we thought the neutron star had formed. But we've not had that evidence before now. So, as I understand it, what your research is doing is showing that there's some unexplained source of heat in the middle of the debris that's been thrown out. And that's what you're associating with what ought to be a neutron star in the middle. Is that, roughly speaking, the idea? So, the wonderful thing about the Webb Telescope, you can see at high resolution both the ring, the outer debris of the star and right in the very centre where the explosion was. But it's not just images we take, so it's not taking a photograph. We also have this fantastic instrument, or two instruments, called spectrographs, which can break down light into their individual elements, so very small wavelengths of light. It's like if you want to just see the blue wavelength or the red wavelength, but in very narrow bands. And people may have done this at school when they threw some salt into a Bunsen burner and saw the colours. It's that kind of analysis. Yes. And so what we see where the star was and where it exploded was argon and sulphur. And we know that these needed an awful lot of energy 
to create these, and, and I mean a lot of energy. And the only thing that could be doing this, we compared this to many different types of scenarios, is a neutron star. So this is basically an extraordinarily hot nuclear ember that's sort of sitting in the middle. Yes, right in the middle. And you can see this because supernova 1987A is about 20 light years across in total. And we can isolate the core where the explosion was from the rest of the debris in this nearby galaxy, which is, I think is fantastic. Do you know how hot the surface of this star is? And is it just sort of the intense heat, X-ray heat, I imagine, that's coming off that's causing all this radiation that you're seeing? I hope you're ready for a very big number. The neutron star is over a million degrees Celsius. And so that's just radiating heat, is it, from a bit... I mean, this is like the ultimate toaster. Yes. So what eventually will happen over the lifetime of the universe is this neutron star will start to cool down gradually and gradually and fade away. But that will be many, many billions of years from now. What we currently have now is one of the hottest things you can imagine in a a very small location, heating up all its surroundings. I wouldn't want to be anywhere nearby there. Lever Jones and the paper was just published in the journal Science. Now, 1987A was briefly very bright. Southern Hemisphere astronomy enthusiasts could easily spot it in the large Magellanic cloud just outside the Milky Way galaxy. But it was nothing like as bright as J0529-4351. Try memorising that. It's a quasar 12 or so billion light years away that has been declared the brightest object in the universe and the hungriest. At first sight, it's an anonymous unremarkable spot of light, one of trillions on an astronomical photo. But if you're an astronomer who knows how to interpret the light, as Samuel Lye does, you'll find this is a monstrous black hole gobbling up anything within reach, close to the edge of all that we can see. So this quasar is a record-breaking ultra-luminous object. In fact, it is the most luminous object that we know of in the universe. Its light has traveled 12 billion years to reach us, so it's an incredibly far object, but it's so intrinsically luminous that it appears bright in the sky. And as I understand it, you identified this as being a very distant and bright object pretty recently, though you've gone back through the catalogues and it was this insignificant speck for quite a long time. Yes, indeed. In fact, we were working on a survey of bright quasars. And so we looked at about 80% of the sky using large data sets from space satellites. Throughout our large data sets, this one was mischaracterized as a star. I mean, it really just looks like one fairly insignificant point, just like all the other ones, right? And so we never picked it up as a quasar before. Nowadays, we're in the era of extremely astronomical, pardon the pun, data sets, where in order to really filter through them, we have these classification algorithms that we use. So we have the computer look at the data set to try to learn what we're looking at and pick out between stars and and quasars. Now, is it also interesting, they were discovered about 60 years ago, the first quasar. These are basically supermassive black holes in the middle of a galaxy that's just swallowing up all the stars and rubbish just around it. And that's the bit that for you is quite interesting in this instance. Yes, exactly. And the quasar owes its luminosity to the rate at which it's feeding from this accretion disk, this material that's swirling around like a storm, with the black hole being the eye of the storm. I mean, I think of it a bit like the muck at the bottom of your sink going down into the blender at the bottom. (laughs) It's just getting chopped up, heated up, shredded. And I mean, what sort of temperatures are you talking about? 
you know, what kind of energy are you talking about being produced in this system? Yeah, so the temperatures in the accretion disk easily go up to tens of thousands of degrees. But talking about brightness, the other way that we like to measure this is in terms of the luminosity of the sun, which gives you a sense of scale. So this quasar is about 500 trillion times brighter than the sun, or equivalent to about 500 trillion suns. And it's been doing this sort of constantly or for, for a long time. I mean, it's just sat there gobbling up everything around it. Yeah, I mean, the mass of the quasar is about 17 billion solar masses. So in order to reach that mass, it has to have been feeding for a very, very long time. We work it out to be about one solar mass per day. So that's an entire sun worth of mass every single day. Or if you'd like to translate that to more human terms, if you take the Earth and everybody that's on it, and we add up all of that mass together, it'll eat about four of those Earths every single second. I suppose what I find gobsmacking about this is, A, the forces, the gravitational forces presumably involved in sweeping up that amount of material. But B, it must be an incredibly busy place. It can't be doing this in some kind of galactic desert. Yeah, indeed. I mean, these quasars, these supermassive black holes, are parts of their galaxies, right? They're always in the nuclear regions of their host galaxies. And in some way, the galaxies are funneling their material into the supermassive black hole. But this one must be presumably a particularly, I don't know, nutritious galaxy, I guess. But it's so far away, you can't make out those kinds of details. We can, however, make out that some of that material moving around inside the storm around the black hole, their dynamics are such that their velocities reach up to tens of thousands of kilometers per second. Why are you looking for them? Is it because you just want to break records? I'm sure it's not. Or is it that you can see these things a long way away? Is it that it tells you something about the history of galaxies? I mean, we can learn a lot about the universe's evolution by looking at the light from the quasars. And in fact, the quasar light tells you a lot about not just the environment that the quasar resides in, but also in anything that the quasar light passes through. So you can think of this light from the quasar as a very distant beacon that illuminates information about everything and anything in between us and the quasar. I mean, the thing that I find striking is... If I've read the numbers right, this thing is so far away that the universe was about a billion years old. I mean, I suppose what I'm wondering is how did a black hole become so massive so early in the universe? Uh, See, I love this question because you're really reaching to the frontier of our current understanding. This is science going on as we speak. We're running into an issue now that some of these black holes are so massive that there's not enough time in the universe at the time that we observe them to be at in order for them to have grown to such masses that, that they're seen to be. We have various hypotheses for how these things have formed, but at the moment we observe it in its current state, and uh, we have to work backwards and look into the even older universe to try to figure out how these guys came to be. Samuel Lye with an observation that could hold the record to the end of his career. Check out John Amos's account of the discovery on the BBC News website as well for some more superlatives. And to finish, some complete cobblers. There are stronger words, but none that I'm allowed to use here on the BBC. But we are talking male anatomy, rat male anatomy, and also about the kind of cobblers that gets generated by AI. And in this case, published in a real science journal, Frontiers in Cell and Developmental Biology. It's caused much hilarity and mockery on scientific social media, but there is a more serious question about how it ever got published. 
The question asked by Cambridge University's Charlotte Hooldcroft, one of the first to spot the invented monstrosity. And Charlotte, thanks for answering our call. Uh, Just tell us a bit more, describe in your own words this hideous uh, image. It is a picture of a rat, quite a cute rat, actually, helpfully labelled rat. It's one of the only labels that is a, a real word. And it appears to have an open abdomen with an enormous testicle protruding from it and a number of blood vessels and a number of other structures that I don't think are anatomically correct. Some of the text isn't even real text. And even the rat's haunch is helpfully labelled testom cell. Testom cell. I mean, (laughs) the picture sort of reminded me, looked a bit like Vesalius, the medieval anatomist meeting Hieronymus Bosch. Yes, in a worse nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it's not just that the figure is anatomical rubbish, but the labelling. There are words which make no sense in any language in there. I mean, they're unpronounceable, desickled. Iliots. This is definitely an AI tool's idea of scientific words. What about the text itself? Is, did he check the text as opposed to the figures? Other scientists on X and other social media platforms have really dug into this paper. Several people have suggested that there's, while mid-journey, the AI generation tool was acknowledged for helping generate the figures, AI wasn't acknowledged as helping generate the text, but several people have used AI recognition tools and think that a lot of the text was fully or partially written by AI as well. You know, we're having a laugh, but this is supposed to be a serious scientific publication and every paper should be checked, well, at least by the experts who work for the publication itself. Can you make any sense of what's happened? It is pretty unusual to see something this egregious get into the published record. Frontiers is a well-known stable of journals. I've published with them, I've reviewed for them. And an editor and at least two reviewers have nominally been through this paper and said, yes, we are. We are happy with this standard. We've suggested some changes. And I think even what seems unusual here is that I think one of the reviewers had flagged up problems with the figures and the authors of the paper had not responded to that, which would be what would normally happen during peer review and it had been allowed to progress through the publication process despite these worries about the figures. I mean the paper has now been withdrawn with remarkable speed in a a week or so of it being put up there. The publishers themselves they responded to your post on social media they say we thank readers for their scrutiny of our articles when we get it wrong The crowdsourcing dynamic of open science means that community feedback helps us to quickly correct the record. I mean, mean, it's sort of celebrating the fact that you're all doing it for free rather than they did it properly in the first place. Yes, they put that reply, I think, on everyone who flagged this paper on X as problematic. And there are academics all around the world giving their time for editing and peer reviewing for free Every single day, there is a problem in peer review that it's often very hard to get people to find the time to say yes, to find the experts that you would like to be appraising your work. Now, I feel guilt when someone asks me to review a paper and I think that is right in my wheelhouse, but I just can't review it in in the two week timescale I'm being given because I've got to teach or I've got experiments or I've got holiday coming up. I was going to come to that, the, the burden that peer review, very important for the keeping literature clean, puts on people like you. I mean, it seems to me that there's a problem here that if you're in a highly respected journal 
it's probably quite easy to get reviewers to do the proper scrutiny. But that in the really low-grade journals, they may end up with very poor reviewers and things just get passed through without proper scrutiny. That's definitely a risk. I think there has been some analysis showing that actually even in very high-profile journals with big brand names, you know, the nature, science and cells of this world, they have retraction rates that are often comparable to what we might consider smaller or less prestigious journals. So it's not it's not a protection against low-quality science getting through necessarily, but there are just so many more journals and so many more papers being published and no one can keep up. Just one other thing, you know, AI is becoming more common and could be quite a useful tool just for getting stuff out looking good. Is AI imagery sneaking through, which isn't so ridiculous as this? Certainly there are specialists in spotting scientific misconduct like Elizabeth Bick, who I believe recently spotted at a paper mill, so a professional company producing papers and charging authors for it who had been fabricating data using an AI tool. But nothing like the artistic licence taken in the case of this uh, weird rat. Thanks very much, Charlotte Holdcroft. And next time we have you on Science in Action, I hope it'll be about some real science, not nonsense made up by AI. I look forward to it. I should add, Frontiers sent us a statement confirming that the, quote, use of AI-generated images contravene our clear guidelines and putting the decision to publish down to human error. Acknowledging the issues raised, they add the incident may be indicative of the tip of an iceberg, wondering, quote, how much else has snuck through the net of other publishers. Certainly, I don't think this will be the last time we talk about AI contamination of the literature. And I hope, no, I guarantee, well, almost, it'll be real solid science we serve up same time next week here at the BBC World Service. I'm Roland Pease, the producer's Ella Hubber, and that's the task we're setting ourselves right now.